Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. We have a very special guest today, uh, Drew Holden, who is a, uh, a maker of threads and, and defender of intellectual consistency in those threads. Uh, he's also a freelance commentary writer who's written for a lot of major publications, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Federalist, Fox News, etc. Uh, so welcome, Drew. Thanks so much for doing this. Ian, pleasure's mine, sir. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to ask, and you might have answered this previously, but I'm curious, what, what got you started making these threads? Uh, they're so like brilliantly simple, but incredibly important and valuable to me, especially. What was it that made you start putting these together? Well, I, I appreciate that. So the first time I remember the that I ever put together a thread was... Um, it was it was back around the time when General Soleimani, the the Iranian general, was killed, um, and the reason I had put it together was because I, I I remember the coverage and I looked at a lot of it and I was like, man, this is this is weird, and I don't know that we always get these honorifics for um, for for these sorts of titles, but who knows? Maybe maybe there's some new trend where we're trying to be nicer to people when when they die. So flash forward a couple weeks and Don Imus, the bomb throwing radio host who uh, famously made a, a racist comment about the Rutgers women's basketball team back uh, probably about a decade ago. So he passed away a couple weeks later and just got slammed. His obituaries, the, the headlines across all of the corporate press were just really trashing this guy hours after he had died. And I saw them and I was like, you know, I, I get it. People had issues with IMS. Obviously, he made some some really indefensible comments, but there's no way on any sort of moral playing field is he worse than a guy who is a, the leader of a terrorist organization right? <laughs> who, has, yeah. who has an enormous amount of innocent blood on his hands. And so I went through for a bunch of different outlets and I posted the two side by side. And I didn't even, I don't think I even said anything, right? There's no real analysis. It was just the pictures. And I looked at them and they jumped off the page to me. I was like, whatever, I'm, I'm going to string six or seven of these together and see if folks like it. And uh, you know, I got I got a pretty good response. And then I started thinking about it. And I was like, man, there's there's definitely a lot to say here. And I should figure out how to do that. And then from that kind of moment, the the thread, the, at least as a concept, was born. And then I've had to tinker and refine a little bit on the format to, to try and get the point across a little bit better. And I'm, I'm sure I'm still learning, too. Hmm. I, do you have a a favorite example of an issue? I mean, obviously that one kind of jumped out at you, but what, yeah. you know, after you started making them, as you've been going down through this through the process, was there something that came up where you're like, "Oh, this is this is it. This is going to be perfect. I've already got. I, I already know the examples are coming for this one." Yeah. So this, I think the one that that comes to mind, it's not so much the side by side, but it's the. Uh, the takes that were preposterous in the moment and people didn't realize that until they saw the light of day a little bit later. And it was the the coverage around Michael Avenatti, I think was, was mm. really, you know, what I end up doing is when whenever I see something that just doesn't pass the sniff test for me, I end up going through and taking a whole bunch of screenshots. Sometimes they pan out and, you know, whatever, whatever I thought was going to happen, happened. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's not close enough. And so they just kind of sit in, in my phone forever. But I remember during the heyday of Michael Avenatti, when CNN was speculating about what his primary strategy was going to be as a potential Democratic nominee for president in 2020, I was watching and I was like, man, the fever on this is, is just unbelievable. And eventually all of these people are going to regret these just really preposterous takes about Avenatti, not just in terms of his political future, but in terms of his intellect and his savvy and his morality and everything else. And I, I remember I just I kept collecting and collecting. And then, you know, the, the trial started and I was like, well, eventually these, I think, are going to have to come back around. <laughs> and so that, that to me was probably the most egregious example of, you know, 
during the Trump era, I think there were a lot of people who were made into heroes for really no conceivable reason other than they were in opposition to Trump. But I think he was probably the most dramatic uh, now in, in hindsight, where I think he's in prison now, right? Or I don't yeah. know if he's, if he's gone through his whole trial yet, but he's either in or headed to prison. Right. Yeah, you hit on a, a very important point there, which I think has become increasingly uh, relevant over the past couple of years with the with the pandemic as well, which uh, I've, I'll get into later a bit. But um, so speaking of COVID, I, you know, I wanted to get your, you know, everybody comes at it from a different different point of view. And, and mm-hmm. so I was kind of curious what your initial reaction was to it. Were you concerned about COVID? Were you what did you think of the policies, lockdowns, all of that stuff as it rolled out? Yeah, good question. Good question. So I think when it first happened, I I was pretty much your standard 20 something living in a blue city um, who was was definitely concerned and was handling the ambiguity of it as something where we should have a, a strong and urgent response. So in retrospect, I remember I think I put I posted something on Facebook that I, I ended up coming to regret. Um, hmm. uh, that was about how all we need to do is is just be quiet and trust the experts on this one. And so my knee jerk first couple of days, first couple of weeks were were very much that. And I remember part of that was you know my uh, my my girlfriend works on Capitol Hill and she had gotten sick in the first couple of weeks. And we were like, oh, I mean, I'm sure it's not connected at all, but who knows, maybe. And then it turned out that, you know, the district she was working in was one of the first that that had cases. And so she might have been, you know, one of one of the first cases here in DC of, of COVID. And so my first thought was, eh, you know, if it if it's maybe already here, we should really kind of clamp down and, and be and be and be cautious with this. Um, and I think that probably for the first week, week and a half, I, I stuck to that. And then that started eroding. I think, you know, when I when I look back and I try and think through how I would have done it differently, I think I probably just wouldn't, I wouldn't have responded with a, uh, a level of fear that was inconsistent with what we knew at the time. And I think at, at the time, I really did do that, is that I really, I really kind of jumped and got spooked and scared. Um, and, and was calling for policies that have had really, you know, calamitous long-term impacts. I certainly wasn't, wasn't, uh, I think, pushing too hard on them early on. Uh, but I think I, I wasn't, I wasn't as clear eyed as some other folks who were right out of the gate. Well, don't blame yourself too much because just by, by saying that you've already exceeded the, how everybody that you, uh, you know, post in your, your Twitter <laughs> threads, <laughs> what they're willing to say about anything that they ever uh, post on the internet. But and, and also, to be fair, you know, the World Health Organization initially was saying that like three and a half percent of people that got COVID were going to die. So, you right. know, I think the expectations were, you know, wildly overstated early on by by the experts. And yep. but it did it did influence opinion. Um, speaking of early days of COVID, you your pin tweet is still about the origins of, of COVID in, in Wuhan from a couple That's of right. years ago. Uh, it to me at this point. I mean, it it feels pretty obvious. It's very likely it came from the lab. So, you know, why do you think so many in the media have been kind of desperate to avoid coming to terms with that, or or have been unwilling to examine that at all? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I've been thinking a lot about this one lately because there was a new, I think maybe two studies in preprint that came out recently that claims to fully debunk the lab leak hypothesis, which which just isn't true. And so, to me, there's there's a few factors. I think one is. You know, when it first came up, there was enormous resistance to the idea. 
um, because the people who were suggesting it were the media's bad guys. And so it was Donald Trump, it was Tom Cotton, it was Republicans, it was, you know, the, the, the people who the corporate press saw as not just the fringe, but kind of morally compromised, right? You've got all of these people who are ginned up with these racist or at least racialized intonations who are, are concerned about this thing and China and cleanliness and all of these things that aren't quite fair. Um, and so I think that that that's cast a really, really long shadow. And it led the media to be very deliberately one way about the, the way that they talked about the potential for the lab leak. Uh, and I think Fauci and the CDC and other people, too. And, you yeah. know, eventually, eventually the fever broke a little bit. Right. I remember to me, one of the really big breakthrough moments was I think it was in January um, of, of, of 2021. There's a piece in the New Yorker about why the lab leak theory was plausible. Not that it was right, not making the case that it was more believable than the, than the, um, the, the wet market theory, but just, this is plausible there. The, the hypothesis here at least holds some water. And that was the first time that I can remember at least where there was a, a, a corporate mainstream press outlet that was even willing to give voice to it. And then you saw things change pretty quickly. I think thereafter, where you had Fauci come out and say, yeah, you know, I'm not 100% positive that it really was from the wet market. And you had a lot more outlets who were at least starting to consider the idea that maybe this hypothesis is worth exploring. Um, and then they hit, I think, another set of headwinds where the researchers, particularly the researchers involved, realized that one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to really go to the mat and say this isn't plausible, even if it might be, or they're going to have government prying around in things that one government probably doesn't understand, and two will make their jobs and lives a lot more difficult. You know, if you if you mm -hmm. look at these two new studies, um, they're by people who do a lot of call it cutting edge medical and biological research. And if the government starts imposing restrictions, even in good faith, even if they're the right things to do, which I certainly think that they are, it's going to make these people's lives and research a lot more difficult and probably cut off access and resources in China. And so that's the last thing they want to have happen. And so you see these new studies come back around that are pushing back on the lab leak hypothesis. And then, of course, the media, because this is confirming everything that they've thought all along, is more than willing to run with those ones and not anything that that cuts counter to the narrative yeah there's a lot of great points in there it speaks to the the power of media that all it took was one piece by an established yeah. outlet and all of a sudden that kind of overton window shifted and yeah uh, but also it, it brings up a, a, a hypothetical that i've thought about a lot and i've asked people a lot uh you know would the response have been different if we had a different president in march of 2020 you know with what would the media's reaction have been how would that have changed do you think yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's there's a part of me that wants to think that if it if it weren't Trump and it was someone that the media thought was more reasonable, then we could have had a more open and honest conversation about the potential for the lab leak. Like there's there's a part of me, a, a little bit a, a wet behind the ears part of me, but there's a part of me that wants to believe that that's true. But to be honest with you, I think what what's probably more likely is that if we had a president who felt more beholden to China than, than Donald Trump did, which I think is anyone else who might've been president, quite frankly, <laughs> uh, including more of the like kind of corporatist bent, more traditional Republicans, then I think they probably would have had the same mis misgivings that most of the voices in the media had about the lab leak, that even talking about it was kind of racist and we should like, China got hit so hard, it couldn't possibly be their fault, right? The morality in all of that is, is, is complicated if you're not, 
even like if if you are not of the opinion that the lab leak theory is relatively probable, which I think most people in good faith are, but like let's let's say it's something new to you, I think it's really easy to cast off and say, oh yeah, it's racism, it's xenophobia, it's you know this that and the other thing. And so I unfortunately I think what probably would have happened is no one would have been giving it voice at all, and the people mm. who would have been giving it voice wouldn't have had the same kind of a microphone, and so there wouldn't have been that dialogue. And I think it, it, in some ways having the leader of the free world come out and push on this thing, even if he didn't do it particularly articulately, it forced people to kind of take up sides on the issue. And in a lot of cases, I think it it forced a lot of people on the left in the corporate press and otherwise to to make themselves seem a little bit foolish by trying to trying to write off this possibility that was eminently plausible by saying, no, 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 if Trump is pushing it, it's got to be off the walls. And so I think that as a result of that, we've actually had a lot more valuable and good dialogue around this thing. Uh, again, even if Trump wasn't exactly coming in with a PhD understanding <laughs> of any of this stuff. That's very interesting. I, that's that's a really unique answer. I haven't heard anybody say that that Trump being president actually helped something in in this yeah, in the yeah. pandemic. So yeah, um, listen, I'm skeptical. Like, there's a part of me that even as I say that, I'm like, is that really true? But like, I think <laughs> it is right. I'm, I, I I I'm very rarely accused of giving Trump too much credit, and and but I I, I think that in this case, it actually again not not because he's playing some 14 dimensional chess or anything, but I do think the way that he handled it probably benefited everyone. Interesting. Uh, so I write a lot about masks and, and I've been curious to see what you think. And, and you know, what did you think of the mask mandates when they started rolling out? Because obviously you, you chronicle a lot of these kind of intellectual inconsistencies. And, and then you have the experts saying everybody needs to wear a mask after all these statements saying, oh, you're an idiot for wearing one early on in the pandemic. Right. Yeah, exactly. And like, so I... I think as a result of that, because I spend so much time kind of nose nose down in, in media and I saw all those early takes, I was already a little bit skeptical, I think, of, of masks and whether or not they made sense. I live in D.C. Uh, at, at, you know, by the time that masks really started taking off, it had started to get warm. And so I think just from a comfort perspective, I was definitely uh, definitely opposed to the idea of masks. <laughs> from from very very early on but i remember seeing those you know the the original the, the you know people like the surgeon general saying don't buy masks and fauci saying don't buy masks and then coming around and saying well we said we only said that because we wanted you to behave a certain way and that i think triggered you know had my my hairs a little bit on end of maybe we're not getting the full range of information here and if we're going to require everyone change their behavior uh, and if they don't, they'll be punished by the government. Then, like the the bar should be decently high. And mm -hmm. I would think that if masks were were helpful and beneficial, we never would have had this back and forth, right? You wouldn't have outlets like Vox coming out and saying that masks don't make sense the the way that they did early on in the pandemic. And you saw a lot of outlets in the corporate press or you know, just outright left-wing outlets saying, no, 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 this mask thing, it, it doesn't make any sense either as a dig to Trump or because they had just familiarized themselves with the information and it didn't really hold a lot of water. And so I think for me, I was, I, I came out of it skeptical of the idea that these, these things actually helped and made sense, willing and open to the idea that maybe that they, maybe they do. Uh, but I think I was a little bit skeptical right from the jump on them. Hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting is they, they said that, oh, it's about protecting supply. But privately, and then we found out later in the BuzzFeed emails, Fauci was telling people, you know, individual people in February of 2020, oh, you don't need to wear a mask. So, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear he was that was a, a, a post hoc justification for what they exactly. were saying. Yeah, yeah exactly. And when, uh, you know, when you have leading, it, it, you're right, it would have been one thing if all along they said, hey, we can't have a run on these things. So um, don't 
don't worry about them right now. We're still not sure what their benefit will be. We're not sure that there's going to be mandates or anything like that. So yeah. don't sweat it for now. We'll figure it out down the road. If they had done that and then come out strongly in favor of math, then I think maybe I would have I would have been a little bit less resistant to go along with it. But the fact that they so adamantly came out and said, look, these things don't make any sense. But, you know, based on the particle sizes, they're, they're not really going to do you a whole lot of good. Um, and we're not sure that anything is even going to work outdoors. You know, as soon as I, I heard that and then I saw the tune change uh, 180 degrees, yeah, I, I thought to myself pretty quickly, like whenever whenever you have to get this quickly into the behavioral modification element of government mm -hmm. coercion, it's not it's not encouraging that they have the facts on their side. Yeah, uh, it really has felt like COVID has kind of exacerbated the kind of tendencies of politicians and authority figures to engage in the kind of like hypocrisy and rush to judgment that's that's yeah. been prevalent that you chronicle so well. Is that is that fair assessment? Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, yeah. And un unfortunately, I, I do. I do think that's really accurate. And, you know, I think yeah. some of it is it's it's a little bit of of the the Trump era in miniature, where whenever something is is on fire or of concern or off, the tensions get ramped up on these things. And I think you have people who aren't uh, aren't, aren't quite as worried about intellectual consistency as I tend to be, and so that that's <laughs> that's just a natural a natural side effect of this. But I think part of it too, and Fauci really to me has been kind of the spitting image of this one is, as soon as you start trying to play your guidance based on what you expect the response to it will be, you really start, rather than what's true, I think you really, really can trip up extremely quickly because you're not thinking about the facts. And it's, it's, it's the same idea of if you tell, you know, if you tell one lie, it gets harder to tell a whole bunch more lies because not only do you have to worry about whether the thing you're saying in the moment makes sense, you have to be looking backward at least somewhat to make sure that you're not contradicting yourself. And I think that, that, that that's that kind of second set of eyes of oh no did I say the other thing last week it just never clicked in and at some point I really do think that the folks like Fauci just stopped caring right they they had they had lost the confidence of so many people we're looking at a public health system that has has just seen its public approval absolutely crater and so I think when you know that you you are losing the number of people who are buying the thing that you're saying it can be a lot easier to to lean into the things that maybe in the moment would be really helpful if you could get at least some people to believe them. And that's mm. obviously not particularly good when you're worried about actual public health outcomes. Right. That's a good point. Um, so, you know, my my personal view is that over time, the media really helped kind of paper over how poorly the predictions and all these kind of dramatic assertions and Fauci's statements and kind of contradictions as you brought up how well they aged over time. I blatantly ripped off your style and did a long thread last year after Texas lifted their mask mandate. You know, yeah. it, was, it was like 25 things of, of experts and politicians, et cetera. Uh, yeah. And nothing happened. Cases went down. So, exactly. you know, the, the media is supposed to be the first to kind of question authority, at least theoretically, but they never seem to do that with COVID. So why is that? Right. You know, I, th I think that's a really good way to put it, you know, because the one thing that I that I could at least pat the media on the back for during the Trump years is is they were dogged in their criticism of the most powerful person on earth. Right. And I, I did like that. I think there were times where it was unfair, but I'd much rather they, they miss in that direction. But, you know, one of the things that I that, that I think has really been exposed from covid is that, you know, people like me and plenty of others, and I know you do, too, talk a lot about the, the kind of media group think in conformity and the fact that the people who tend to become 
reporters and journalists overwhelmingly have a certain set of values and worldview and everything else. And so I think that that's always problematic. It's always a challenge for the media. Certainly during the election of Trump, it was a big challenge for the media. Uh, but I actually think that COVID is probably the most acute challenge where that group think is really what gets mired and kind of bogged down because you've got a whole bunch of people who, even if they're somewhat conservative, their educational attainment uh, and, and income and familial income and all these other different kind of variables point them in a direction of seeing the world in a particular way, which is pro-mandate, pro-government control, pro-everything else. And I think it made it really, really hard for them to look back and say, actually, this is the government doing a bad thing, as opposed to, well, we need the government to step in because no one else is willing to do this thing. And so mm -hmm. since it was kind of cloaked in that fuzzy... Uh, paternal sort of we're, we're just here to help because there's no one else to help then the media almost uh, one they, they I think they were overly willing obviously to believe that but I think to them it's like well duh what else would we possibly want and I, I can I can never help but think that maybe you know just maybe if we had 10% more conservative journalists you would have at least one reporter in the newsroom who would be like hey are we have we thought through what this is going to look like in <laughs> six months when all of these governors and mayors still have the same power and authority like are, are we sure that's really something we're comfortable with but we haven't i think at any point had that um and i i i, I think unfortunately a lot of it is due to just the, the the type of people who tend to be journalists yeah you hit on something i think that's really uh, uh problematic going forward in just general life which is these echo chambers and it kind of gets yeah. uh consolidated even more in things like corporations now it's you can see it's it's affecting right. that um so you work in communications a, a bit and obviously communications about COVID policy have been incredibly important and also yeah. extraordinarily bad in my opinion, yes. where, <laughs> where you see things like the former CDC director saying masks are going to provide better protection than vaccines, things like that. Yeah. So as somebody who does this professionally, what's that, what's that been like watching this unfold in the communication style? Yeah. I mean, certainly frustrating is, is, <laughs> is the, yeah. the first word that comes to mind. Um, and, and I think it's, it's frustrating, not just because it's bad, but because it's avoidable, right? Like I, there was a really, really good piece early on in the pandemic that I think was in New York Magazine that compared the crisis responses from Seattle and New York City to the pandemic. Uh, and, and what they did, particularly from a communications perspective of how did they relay important public health information to the people who needed to know it. And I think one of the things that's really killed me throughout the pandemic, but particularly coming out of New York with Cuomo and, and, and with other authorities is you saw time and time again, individuals over promising the amount of information and confidence that they had, or at least had a right to have based on the limited information that we had. And so one of the things that piece I think explored really well was out in Seattle, they were, they were ground zero for cases, right? And so they knew and kind of put their hands up and they're like, look, we're gonna keep giving you the best of our information and we'll do that as long as we can, but we don't have much to go on right now. And in mm -hmm. New York, you saw a very different approach where you, you one, had way more confidence and two, the people who were communicating it were partisan actors, right? You had someone like an Andrew Cuomo get up there and tell people what it was, you know, what he thought the case was and what, what the situation on the ground was going to be. And that's kind of, you know, from my understanding, that's basically a 101 thing that you don't do if you're a government that's communicating through a crisis. You don't want all of these issues refracted through the lens of politics. And you saw from, I, I think, unfortunately, eventually from Fauci, certainly, but from a lot of blue state governors, you, you had these two things get meshed 
Um, and I think some of that, unfortunately, was deliberate, where they're, they were appealing to their voters to say, look, you trust me, you care about people, you wise and seasoned Democrats, you <laughs> need to do the right thing. And so for me, I think the, the really, really frustrating thing is you had that spirit of, of overconfidence and this kind of political calculation very obviously undergirding so much of the communications that it was only a matter of time before they got something wrong and needlessly destroyed their credibility at a time where their credibility was incredibly important. Uh, and yeah. so that to me, I think seeing that first happen and then snowball uh, from the sidelines was, was unbelievably frustrating. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, kind of relatedly, it, it seems like all of their mandates and, and, you know, the vaccine passports and things, it all went away at once in like the yeah. last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, there's been some polling data and PR advice that seemed to come out suggesting Democrats have gone too far with COVID measures. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, they've kind of sidelined Fauci. He is not out there every week talking on the, the, the news shows. Yeah. Uh, do, so do you think that, that that kind of polling shift explains how quickly and dramatically everything changed? Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think I do. The one other thing too, and it's probably unfair in terms of what its impact is, but you know, I keep thinking that that time should at least nominate Stacey Abrams as as person of the year twenty two, because I I do think a big part of it was that picture, right? That 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 mm. picture that she shared of her sitting cross legged and maskless in a sea of masked children, and I think that was so visceral for so many people, and particularly so many parents. Who are unbelievably frustrated that within two or three weeks you saw mass mandates in schools and then just in general too fall in places like New York and California that had really been some of the most oppressive in terms of their restrictions. I do think what it comes down to is mostly, how, however, and unfortunately, is the polling. You know, mm. I think the, I think not just the the loss of the governor's race in Virginia and then the close call. This is the one that I think it's overlooked too much. The close call in New Jersey, a reliably blue state that really just by a couple, you know, a couple of fractions ended up going to a Democrat incumbent over a, a little known Republican challenger. I think that caused a lot of Democrats to finally wake up and go from saying, eh, whatever, leave it to leave it to the states and people to decide to this is a five alarm fire for our party. And if we don't if we don't do this soon enough so that people have forgotten it by the time they're casting their their mail-in ballots in a few months, then this could be cataclysmic. And so I think yeah. they they collectively took a hard look at that. They put out some new talking points. And then I would imagine there was a lot of really strong internal pressure on blue state governors to say, you got to knock this off. Um, and it should have happened a long time ago, right? I'm certainly glad with the outcome. Uh, but as as you've written, there's there was never compelling information to support these positions anyway. So it really is unfortunate that what took us getting to that point were some really awful poll numbers. Yeah, it shows you how much of this is influenced by by politics in, yep. in a lot of ways. Uh, so kind of on the flip side of that, I, I you mentioned California. I live in Southern California. So, you know, the messaging here has has definitely been that masks are almost certainly going to come back, you know, whether that's in the fall or when you get a new variant or whatever. The CDC yeah. even phrased it as, oh, we're going to give people a break from masking. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, am I being too pessimistic to think that they will bring it back up, you know, the next time cases go up or after the midterms are over? You know, that's a, that's a great question. Ian. And my my thinking is that it's it's going to have to be state by state where there are different places that are more confident in the willingness of their population to subject themselves to masks where you probably will see it come back. But, you know, getting, getting back to your political point, I, I do think a lot of this will have to do with when do cases spike and what do polling numbers look like and how can 
what what are what are these you know these blue state governors what do they think about what's what's going to happen come 2022 because if i'm if i'm gavin newsom and i've just survived the recall election i might be a little bit more confident in my ability to reimpose the mass mandate or just encourage cities and other localities to to reimpose the mass mandate but man, you know, if I'm if I'm a, a governor of a of a purple state, you know, your your Colorados or something, and I look at the polling of parents when it comes to masks and masks in schools, then I don't know if I'm willing to. And and to me, and I, I'd be curious to get your take on this. The thing that I think is really complicating a lot of this is um, the the messaging on mask mandates in general versus mask mandates in schools, right? And so to me. There, it's it's always been untenable that we would expect kids who are in the least high, they are the lowest risk when it comes to contracting and suffering severe consequences from or dying from COVID. It's always seemed to me to be pretty untenable that we would force them to wear masks in the long term. But I'd be really curious what you think is going to happen if that if that switch does flip. Because now those facts are all out there. Because when when they pulled yeah. the mask out of schools, a lot of them admitted that, right? They said the quiet part out loud around around kids being pretty safe from COVID. And so, what do you do now? Do you reimpose a mask mandate, but not in schools? Do you put a, the the mask back on in schools and risk frustrating all of these parents who have already had it up to here with 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 states and governments? Yeah, that's a great question. I I personally. My concern is that they are willing to risk it in large part due to the teachers unions where, you know, in Los Angeles, they lifted the mask mandate in schools, or I I think they at least mostly did. And the teachers unions were furious and basically said, no, we want to keep it. Um, You know, New York is still masking toddlers. It's the only age demographic in the whole city that required to wear masks or ages like two to four. Yeah, it's it's, exactly. It's unbelievable. So I don't know. I really I would like to believe, like you said, they they keep kind of destroying their own arguments after the restrictions lift because they go, oh, well, actually, you know, Leanna went on CNN, says ma- uh, cloth master facial decorations, you know, yeah. Washington Post said mass mandates never worked. But you still kind of have that that, you know, I, I don't know. I'm concerned the cat is out of the bag as far as like people think that masks work in, in a lot of these specific demographics and it's going to be hard for them to give it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that, that sounds right. Hopefully I'm wrong. I, I think you make two really good points there. One or three really good points, really. One is just the power of the teachers unions. I think in, in places like L.A. and Chicago and New York, where the teachers unions really have a ton of pull, then in some cases it doesn't matter, which is the second point that I think you, you kind of alluded to here, which is that there's a shamelessness about all of it where like. I wish the I wish the hypocrisy mattered, and I wish it would prevent people from doing something, but it, it just doesn't, right? Like, Dr. Leanna Wen is a, a great example where uh, I think it was maybe a month, a month and a half apart. She went from saying that kids in schools needed to wear at least, at least a three-ply surgical quality mask yeah. in schools to their facial decorations. Right. Right? Like if, if, <laughs> if, if you can have an expert flip the switch that quickly in terms of what she thinks schools should be doing, then like, yeah, you're right, the cat is out of the bag, but unfortunately so many of these people don't care. And so the thing that compels them, I think, to care is going to be those polling numbers. And, you know, I was, I was walking around D.C. We got a little bit of snow early this week, and I was walking the dog, and I looked and I, I started counting and about 50% of the people outside on Saturday morning when I was walking my dog were wearing masks outdoors while it was snowing. And I was like, you know, these maybe maybe some of these people like they're they they just they feel safe wearing these stupid things and so they don't care like if, if the mandate comes back they're the they've they've still got their masks cleaned and ready and washed 
sitting mm-hmm. by the side of their of uh, of their bed waiting to put them on as soon as they wake up in the morning and so maybe bringing back the mandates aren't going to hurt them with those people and so i think in some places particularly in cities maybe they do and maybe it's because they don't think there's going to be huge political repercussions but i really do think in some of those states like the the, the parents are done right like if yeah. you're if you're a, a governor in a Virginia or a Colorado or I, I wonder even a Michigan, if you're looking at this and you're like, man, I, unless I'm willing to lose 65% of the parent vote, then this ship has sailed. Yeah. Sometimes it makes Florida seem uh, seem very appealing when you think about these things yeah. coming back forever. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's obviously other issues in the world other than COVID. And, and you recently put together a, a great the large threat on on the Biden claims about energy production. Sure. Um, and, you know, you could say this about most of the threats you do, but, you know, these people do realize the Internet exists, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's it seems like an especially egregious example of asking people to kind of ignore or forget reality. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too. And, you know, as I was, as I was putting it together, I, I started to think, I was like, maybe this is just how gas prices as a political issue have always worked a little bit, right? Where, like, this is, it's a it's a famous can to kick on the on the other side of the street whenever there's someone else in office doing this. But, you know, I, I think one of, one of the reasons I wanted to pull together the thread wasn't just that the way people had talked about, about gas prices at one time or another before and after. It really was about what Biden had done on energy production and how it was greeted, right? You know, I was I was reminded today about um, the the Secretary of Energy making some statements back about a year ago about how fossil fuel companies need to get on board with a green transition. Like the, the people seem to have forgotten in about a year's time that Biden and his and, and the people around him, both on his campaign and now that he's in office, this was a really important point where he took flack from both sides on the environmental issue. And he scored a lot of points with, with the Greens, the environmentalists, young voters, everything else by saying, I'm going to stick it to fossil fuels and legacy fuel sources. We're going to be tough on these things in a way that other presidents haven't been. And he got all sorts of plaudits for this when things were going at least okay. And now as soon as things really take a turn, you see all of that kind of commentary get memory hold. And and for me, it was so frustrating because you would think like if you were someone who is a, even like, let's say you're a reporter, but you're committed to the environmental cause, whatever, like your talking points should be the same, even if gas prices go up. And it was so obvious that so many people were, were willing to very, very quickly abandon these principles and precepts that they purported to believe in so strongly a year ago that it, it really did give me a sense of whiplash. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that kind of is related to uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, which was uh, our, our good friend, Jesse Smollett. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that seems like a, a really perfect distillation of the rush to judgment that kind of turns out to be inaccurate, right? Is that, I mean, it's, it's just kind of so it sums up so much of what we've been kind of talking about, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. You know, uh, now, now that I think about it, the, the better answer to the an- the question you asked earlier about kind of the perfect distillation, it may not have been Avenatti. It, it might have been, <laughs> been Smollett, really. Um, you know, one of the things, one of my favorite kind of details that I think confirms an enormous amount about the media from the Smollett cases. Um, and, and so CNN was one of the first outlets to break the Smollett story. And um, one of the reasons they did is that they confirmed his account, they said in, in their reporting on it. And you know, you know how they had confirmed confirmed his his account of what had happened i actually don't know this because no. don lemon 
friend of Jesse Smollett oh. talked to him, and that was the confirmation that that it had happened. And so you had like to to me the, the you know the, the the Jesse case does a does a few things. One, um, I think it is really the the perfect capture of the media's willingness to believe that something happened when it fits their priors. And what could possibly fit their priors more neatly than a gay black man attacked by, by MAGA hat wearing Trump voters, right? It's, 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 it's so perfectly constructed to, to hit those priors that it allowed the media to overlook just preposterous things. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this, this, the Chappelle bit about this where, you know, Mm -hmm. People really did believe, at least in the moment, that there were, you know, the the two Trumpiest fans of the TV show Empire who were just <laughs> hiding out in Chicago at two in the morning when it was like negative thirty wind chill and just happened to see him. Right? Like, right. I would love to know the Venn diagram of people who voted for Trump and people who are such big fans of Empire that they could recognize Smollett out on the street particularly in the middle of the night because I don't I don't think I think those are two separate circles. And so it wasn't just it, you know this gets back I think to a little bit of what we talked about with the covid stuff. It wasn't just that they were willing to believe it. It's that they were willing to ignore so so many potential inconsistencies to believe it and believe it with gusto, right? When you look back at the coverage, one of the things that still when I look back at it strikes me is how unbelievably and kind of shamelessly confident in the narrative corporate press mainstream outlets were. We're not talking about opinion commentary people or opinion analysis. This was supposedly straight reporting from some of these places about what this what this incident said about Trump and Trump voters. And so the ability to draw those kinds of overhyped conclusions in general should be problematic. But the fact that they did it based on a hoax really does, I think, capture so much of what so many people are frustrated about, about the modern media. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, the Lincoln Project stunt in Virginia with the totally. yeah, just exactly the same thing. They just kind of immediately buy into something that it never made any sense and is completely unrealistic, but exactly. it fits the narrative. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And like, look, obviously, Smollett knew it was going to fit the narrative, right? You don't you don't go out and hoax a hate crime if you didn't think anyone's going to believe you. And yeah. so, to to me, there's a little bit of there has to be at least a smidgen of self-awareness on these sorts of things where they were the mark, right? Like the, the, the people who ended up defending him to the death were the mark all along and they got taken for a ride. And, you know, I remember I, I went back and saw there's, there's a tweet from uh, like a CNN talking head guy, um, Keith, there's a Keith Boynton, I think is his name. And he, he came out like a week or maybe two weeks after all this blew up and tried to dunk on people who questioned whether or not Smollett was like entitled to his, you know, a, a, a fair day in court or something because the, because Chicago had temporarily dropped some of the charges against him. Right. Cause he's like friends with Kim Fox or whatever all it was. Yeah. And I remember I saw that and I was like, how, like what, how blinkered does your reality have to be? where you think this is your opportunity, not just to be vindicated, but to dunk on your opponents because you think you've been momentarily vindicated. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that kind of is related to, I just a couple more questions for you. And that's kind of related to one of the ones that I wanted to get your idea of just broadly, you know, like where are we heading with all of this? It, it, it's, you know, fact checks are often completely ridiculous. You have, like you said, CNN verifying the reporting by talking to one of the reporters and, and similarly with the Cuomo situations yeah. with them, um, yep. you, you know, people can kind of ignore reality and get away with it. I, I, the Nicholas Sandman story. Yep. Um, so is this just what life is going to be like going forward? Is there any hope for that to ever kind of go back to normal 
you know, it's a, it's a great question. And this is probably the one question in kind of like American life that I spend the most time thinking about. And I, I think I'm kind of of two minds. There's a, the optis, optimist in me that wants to say that the Trump years were so ridiculous with some of this reporting and the things that they bought on and every, like, you know, the Russian collusion hoax and everything else that surely by now the fever has broken. Trust in the media is at an all time low. And they have to be able to just look in the mirror at this point as their industry repeatedly contracts and no one is watching them anymore and say, Ugh, uh, maybe we were wrong on this and that there has to be some correction if they want to survive. And so that's, that's the optimist in me. Unfortunately, I think the side that probably wins out usually when I have this argument with myself is, is the opposite case, where mm. I, I think, unfortunately, the incentives in media are really, really bad if your goal is telling the truth which is an unfortunate fact, I think, between social media and the fact that all of these places make a ton of their, their revenue from ads and clicks and views, and that none of those things are necessarily tied to building trust with their audiences, right? And so to me, my worry is that they're, the, 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 the media ship is sinking for a lot of those reasons, plus because of the groupthink, but that no one really individually has much in the way of an incentive to change or stop that. And so mm -hmm. what we're probably going to see, I think, is you'll see these trends continue and amplify and speed up. And I think, you know, if, if Donald Trump runs for office in 2024, forget it. Everything's out the window. Yeah. It's going to get a thousand times yeah. worse. But, but I think even like everything else kind of staying as it is, let's say we get a normal nominee in 2024 and things could conceivably or should at least calm down. I, I don't think they do. Because you you know you look at places like MSNBC or like the Brian Seltzers of the world, their audiences are a tiny, tiny fraction of what they were in the Trump heyday. And I think that they've been designed over the last couple of years to chase those clicks and chase those views. And the only way they know how to do that, even if it's unsuccessful, is by cranking up the volume to, to a, a decibel level that is inconsistent with reality. Mm. Yeah, I uh, as a semi-pessimistic person myself, I tend to agree with you. So <laughs> hopefully, we're wrong, but I yeah, I, I hope I, I hope beyond hope that I'm wrong, right? And I do yeah. think, tend to be an optimist about about this and most things, but uh, I, I I unfortunately don't see this ship writing itself anytime soon. Yeah, so that's that's kind of related to my last question, which is a little bit more of more fun. You, <laughs> you feature all a lot of the same people in your threads. I mean, it, yes. our, our Queen Jennifer Rubin, for example. <laughs> so. Yeah. Do, do you have a favorite? Is there somebody you're just like, I got to, as soon as some major event happens, I got to go to their feed. I know they're going to have just the, the hottest take in the world right now. That's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I wish I could come up with one. Like, I, I wish it were true that there was like a, a deep cut take of someone who was just super reliably wrong and super interesting <laughs> who could outdo Jennifer Rubin, but, but there just isn't. I mean, like if, you made, like, if I had to make, my perfect arch nemesis in a lab, it would come out as Jennifer Rubin. Like, it, it, <laughs> it, it, there, I don't think I would change a single detail. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of other people who are kind of in that cloth, right, of those former Republicans, the Max Boot types, who I think are, are good and reliable for, for producing something ridiculous. But to me, what really sets Rubin apart, in, at least in the Biden years, is just the shameless pandering. Like mm -hmm. she is truly willing, it, it, at one point with Rubin, it was, she was willing to say something today that was the antithesis of what she believed three or four years ago, but now it's week to week. I mean, whatever, <laughs> whatever the political goal is, she'll, she'll spout the talking points and that just creates such perfect fodder for what I'm looking to do on Twitter. That, that she can't be topped. She, she simply can't be topped. It's, it's, it's amazing and hilarious. Um, yes, it is. So, 
thank you so much, Drew, for doing this. Uh, please, everybody, go follow Drew on Twitter if you're not already, which you should be. Uh, it's Drew Holden 360. It's, it, I mean, legitimately, you're m- probably my favorite person, individual person on Twitter. So <laughs> thank, thank, you. thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Pleasure's mine. I, I really appreciate you having me on. This was a blast of conversation. Uh-huh.